Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Thank you to everyone who is supporting this podcast and who is making it possible. And I really want to thank you also for your calls and for your emails and your messages of affirmation. It is really very gratifying. And I'm so glad that this has been helpful to you and to your families. And again, thank you so much for the feedback. It's very powerful. And I want to do a special shout out for the people who are helping to support this on Patreon at $10 and above per month. To Alexandra, to Anne and Richard, Brianna, Camus, Christina, Corey, Jake, James, John, Lillian, Linda, Maureen, Miss Nanya, Peter and Cynthia, Scott and Sylvia. I could not do this without you and without all of the supporters. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Stephen Kent is a sociology professor and an adjunct professor in the Interdisciplinary Program of Religious Studies at the University of Alberta. He researches and teaches courses on groups variously called sects, cults, and alternative religions. He has been involved in court cases concerning controversial groups in Canada, the United States, the United Kingdom, and Ireland, and he gave invited testimony before a federal German parliamentary committee investigating sex and psychological groups. He's been quoted in hundreds of media accounts around the world, including newspapers, magazines, television shows, and radio interviews in Canada, the US, the UK, France, Ireland, Switzerland, Sweden, Germany, Poland, India, Uganda, and Vietnam. Recent academic publications have included studies of anti-government movements, polygamy, Scientology, brainwashing, and religious-based child sexual abuse, a wide variety of topics. And that makes for a very interesting discussion with Stephen. We go a lot of different directions. And today we have part one of a two-part conversation. Here's Stephen. Rachel, it's uh, Steve Kent. I'm a, a sociology of religion professor at the University of Alberta in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. I'm cross-appointed as an adjunct professor to uh, religious studies. And you and I have not had an opportunity to speak for a long time, so I was really happy to be able to talk to you and to see you also, for people who are going to be able to see this on video. And to be able to hear about some of the things that you've done throughout the years, because there have been a lot of people who have been at the forefront of these subjects. Uh, some people have heard of, some people haven't, but I think it's important for people to know you and to know what you've done and what you're still doing. Um, and so I also am excited because when, but right before this, when we went over some subjects and you gave me some subjects possibly to cover, I was thinking, yes, yes, yes. Oh, uh-huh. Yeah, that too. That too. It's like, yes, such good subjects. And they're so relevant and so timely and especially about the manipulation and control and all of it, that it's a little too timely right now, unfortunately. Right. Um, so then can you tell us just a little bit about how you got started in being interested in this? Sure. I entered uh, university in 1969, University of Maryland. And um, before the end of, of the school year, May 1970, uh, American campuses exploded. They exploded in op uh, opposition to, to the American Cambodian invasion. Mm. A campus... Uh, broke out in riots. There were riots out, outside of my dormitory. Uh, and so the, the atmosphere of my generation was heavily politicized. For the next two or three years, there were decreasing amounts of riots. But by the time I graduated, uh, the political fervor had died down. And what I had seen and did not understand was an influx of gurus and swamis and enlightened masters and spiritual teachers and ashrams and communes. And there just seemed to have been a shift. 
I graduated in 1973 in sociology and spent the next couple of years trying to find work. But I was just visiting uh, a, a number of groups. I was curious, interested in them. Um, I had one very odd experience. Well, one odd experience that stuck with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was in Philadelphia and the Guru Maharaji, mm-hmm. 16-year-old perfect master, was speaking somewhere in Philadelphia. A friend uh, uh, arranged for us to get a ride. The person driving was probably in her 20s. Her grandmother was with her and the 20-year-old's daughter. So there's four generations minus a mother, perhaps in her 50s. Mm-hmm. We went to the church. Uh, the women there looked like earth mothers, the long dresses, long hair. The men looked like IBM sales, salesmen, the suits, the ties. Anyway, we were crammed. I mean, sardined. The excitement built, built and built. Someone came out and said, ladies and gentlemen, who's got a car? We forgot the pillows for Guru Maharaji's feet. Someone had a car. They went off and got the pillows. Then later, a, a man came out and said, ladies and gentlemen, I've seen the Lord. He was in New York City. He's going to be in this church this evening. Well, Later, I figured out that that man who did the introduction was the, the former political activist, Rennie Davis. Oh. Davis had been active in many of the anti-war movements, and he converted to Guru Maharaji. Mm. Maharaji came out, and it was a joke. It was the most ridiculous thing I had ever seen. The, the scenario I remember, and I apologize for the politically incorrect nature of the content, but he said something like, uh, if you're a native in an African country and, and you look up in a Piper Cup airplane flies over, over you, you go, oh, what a big airplane. Ah, there are 747s. And I thought, this is ridiculous. This is nonsense. Mm-hmm. So we're driving back in the car, listening to the 20-some-year-old talk to the grandmother. They'd been so moved by the performance they were talking about going the next day to kiss Maharaji's lotus feet. I just did not understand what was going on. Yeah. In the same room, seeing the same, what I thought was nonsense. They were moved. I was completely turned off by the whole. So that experience, that, that anomaly stayed with me. And when I went back to graduate school two years later, 1975, uh, at, at American University, I was supposed to study, I think, English Bible literally walked into the office of the religious studies, and there was an advertisement about a new program in Hinduism. I went, sure. So I switched right away, and eventually I got a master's in Hinduism. And that, but So I, I'd seen and uh, witnessed, and to some very small extent, been a part of that, that Eastern uh, influx. Mm-hmm. And at some point, I actually found an, an academic article that explained what I had seen and witnessed, witnessed and what was going on through Maharaji. So by that time, I was really interested in, in new religions. It turns out my, my, I got a master's in Hinduism with a minor in Gnosticism, uh-huh. and then came to the Mastering University in Canada in Hamilton, Ontario, got a second master's and a PhD in religious studies, but it was social sciences of religion. And oddly enough, dissertation topic was on sectarian groups. There were sectarian groups in England in the 1650s after the English Civil War. Oh. Explosion groups. Quakers, ranchers, Muggletonians, fifth monarchists, a whole uh, atomites, just an explosion of groups. And I was using the current material uh, that had been written on the the current uh, sectarian groups to analyze what had gone on back then. Got a postdoc here at the University of Alberta for two years. And toward the end of it, I realized I was going to be out of a job in a few months. And nobody cared about 17th century cults <laughs> or sex. So I did a research grant to study uh, sects, cults, and new religions moving between Canada and the US. And I got the grant. And that launched my, my studies. Uh, I uh, left uh, University of Alberta for one year to go to University of Waterloo in Ontario, came back to a, a tenure stream position, and I've been here ever since, since I guess that's, oh, 87 or so, 1987. So I've been here over 30 years. 
Um, I teach a course on, I do sociology religion and a course on deviance, but I also do a course on uh, sectarian groups. And that research has uh, been useful because students ask me questions. They make me think about materials that I just haven't considered or look at angles of information I hadn't considered. So, um, you know, I, I try to keep up as best I can uh, with what's going on in the field. Um, but I made a decision early on and it, was, it turned out to be really controversial. And that was to listen to what former members had to say, uh, uh, people who had been in groups. Mm, okay. I hadn't realized, although it became very apparent to me early on, that a significant movement in the academic uh, establishment, people who studied so-called new religions, were diametrically opposed, with a few exceptions, to listening to the accounts of former members. Oh. There were some exceptions to it. The argument was that former members cannot be trusted. They have agendas to explain away mm. their involvement with these groups, and they, therefore they were illegitimate. And it wasn't a matter of uh, listening to them and checking what they say. It was a categorical denial of, of their uh, legitimacy. It's so, it's so ironic, just to jump in for a sec, because that's what cults say about the people who have left, that don't, you can't trust their account of it, there's something wrong with them, or that's Satan, or it's because they couldn't cut it, or you know, or something bad is going to happen to you if you talk to them. So it was happening from both sides, that the people who left, who had the accurate information, who had valid reasons for leaving, could not be accessed as resources. It's so interesting. Yeah. Very true. Now, uh, trying to figure out where that position came from, yeah, you can understand to some degree uh, what started it. If you remember in the early, mid-1970s, when, for example, Ted Patrick was doing uh, e-programming. Right, the forcible, yeah. The techniques he used was to uh, get a person, sometimes... Uh, with little force, sometimes with, uh, with extreme force, uh, talk them, pressure them out uh, to renounce the beliefs they, they held, and then have them hold a press conference. In that press conference, they would deny and uh, they would denounce mm. uh, they'd been in, claimed they'd been manipulation, uh, they'd been manipulated and coerced, and so on. What happened in some instances is that after people gave these denunciations of their cult involvement, yeah. they rejoined. <laughs> oh. So there were a couple of instances of high-profile people who rejected their rejections. Uh -huh. And that, reje that pattern or that, that possibility, I think, became the basis of academics making the, these categorical statements. These statements, however, uh, as you are implying, got picked up by and, and uh, furthered by groups like Scientology and Children of God. Mm -hmm. A number of academics became sympathetic with these groups for a number of complex reasons. Uh, academics who study these groups always want to have access. If a person, if a researcher is too critical, then the person's going to get blocked, cut out, cut off from the group. Uh, moreover, uh, on a lot of interpersonal bases, um, people in some of these groups are really quite pleasant. Mm -hmm. Easy to understand how uh, a researcher gradually starts to sympathize. Uh, moreover, some of the major figures in the study of, of so-called alternative religions cults uh, are not academics in a formal sense. They don't have academic appointments. Mm -hmm. There are various degrees independent scholars. Consequently, they do not have regular incomes. Uh, I tell my students, if I get lazy for a month, I still get a paycheck. Uh -huh. Some of these people don't do any work for a while. Right. It was very clear uh, early on that people could make a lot of money mm -hmm. That argument's got thrown from the cults against their critics, mm -hmm. from the uh, the critics against uh, academics and independent scholarship work for them. Yeah, I've heard 
figures about what some of these uh, cult supporters have gotten in consulting fees. And I, my, I, they're just astonishing. Um, I've heard figures, dollars $80,000, $90,000 for a single case. Now, none of that is, I've not seen it written down. I've talked, uh, especially one person who's gone up against them many times. In one case, I got about $25,000 in a case that just drove me crazy in terms of, uh, it was with the uh, uh, Equal Opportunity Employment Commission in the U.S. They kept changing what they wanted. So I, I wrote a report and they said, oh, why are we changing? And so I just kept reworking with them. I spent days with them. But that's on that's what I saw on the inside as a person doing consulting. And I and some others, you know, often did free cases right. or, or fees or whatnot. Right. The stories that I've heard are, are astonishing. Um, there was one, now I witnessed this. I was in a court case. Uh, on the stand about uh, about a Scientology case in Ireland, mm. and I, I would say something, and they take a break and come back, and they'd ask ask the lawyers face me a question. I thought, how in the world did they come up with that question? What was going on? And there was one particular topic. I thought, I just I, I don't know what what had happened. Is the uh, they had Scientologists uh, sitting up with, with the, uh, the, the defense lawyers representing Scientology. I would say something. During the break, the Scientologists would go out and they'd telephone an academic back in the United States with a statement I made who would then, in his, in his office, you know, look up sources and feed them back to, to the attorney for questions for me. And I know that happened. Because when I talked to another consultant, she was in a court case where the the, the cult side got called out for doing it. Yeah, okay. In the court case, you're supposed to, for expert witnesses, you were supposed to have access to cross-examine. Mm-hmm. Well, if you're calling somebody on the telephone, you know, out in the, out in the hallway. Right, right. So there's been a real subculture of fights back and forth. Um, and some of the most, not all, but some of the most prominent people in this field have, have been outside the, the limitations and restrictions and ethical obligations that academics uh, have to go under. Mm. Uh, when I first started studying cults, new religions, I would meet someone uh, and say, I'm getting a tape recorder and go talk to them. Well, then uh, the university became increasingly concerned about ethics violations. Mm-hmm put in uh, uh, different kinds of ethics reviews we had to go through. And the ethics reviews got stricter, complicated, more elaborate. And now, if I meet someone, it would take me probably a month and a half to get permission to turn on the tape recorder. We have to be very careful about what we say, what we do, and how we do it. Independent scholars, they're not accountable to anybody. Right. And I, I've come across in terms of independence that happening with people who have gone to unlicensed everythings and uh, to people who call themselves counselors or whatever else. And there's no governing body. There's no license. There's no board. There's no one overseeing it. So there's nowhere to complain to. So they can get away with really almost anything. And if we have a board and we have people who are watching over us and we have guidelines we actually have our hands tied so much more than the people who are out there doing and saying whatever they want and and that they can stay in practice no matter how much damage they cause that you know it's it doesn't make sense to me i know rachel in one case where a person was in counseling by a professional uh, uh, counselor who's a member of, of the local uh, Professional Psychological Association, and then started doing mischief. Uh, the the person I knew made a complaint to the professional board. The person just withdrew her membership, so the professional board uh, lost any authority. There was no professional sanction because she'd left. And you know something that I've heard about recently with people coming to me who have gone to these uh, treatment centers, teen 
treatment and others that I'm sure you've heard horrible stories. I've heard horrible stories and there's no oversight. And so it, behind closed doors in the shadows, people can get away with way too much. And, you know, these kids or pe people of all ages are sort of held hostage. Um, and then there's no recourse. And it makes me, yeah, makes me angry. To expand upon your point, uh, an area of real concern involves uh, pseudo-medical advice. Mm. One of the big issues with Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, is that the attorneys for the Jehovah's Witnesses tend to be actual members. And as members, they swear an oath of allegiance to the organization. Consequently, uh, uh, when a person's child, an adult, gets admitted into a hospital, often uh, Jehovah's Witnesses have hospital boards assigned to the hospital. So mm -hmm. they, they know that a member's been admitted. These lawyers will fly out immediately to the hospital. Mm. An attorney is supposed to be committed to the best interest of the individual. These attorneys have taken oaths of allegiance to the organization, so they have conflict of interest. Moreover, they may be giving pseudo-medical advice about uh, blood treatment refusal to underage teenagers uh, and even to adults, but they don't have medical training. Mm -hmm. Real conflict of interest, even on a professional level. Yes. These groups, uh, some of the groups, have professionals who are members. Mm -hmm. But the conflict between the allegiance, sometimes formal allegiance, these people have sworn to con the controversial manipulative groups versus the professional allegiance. Yes, there are so many uh, blurred lines in so many fields, but especially here when you're dealing with uh, giving someone advice, counsel, medical advice, but also um, following what you think is the right way to do it according to God. And, yes. you know, there's, there's sort of no way for that to come together um, in, I think, in a responsible way, ultimately, for the person who you're dealing with. And I'm, I'm wondering also if you feel now with there being more education about this and more shows about it out there, do you feel like the public perception has been changing? Do you feel like people are getting it or not quite yet? And I'll jump in to say something before you have a chance to answer. I am still shocked by how many people haven't heard of particular groups and will still ask questions, you know, oh, that's a calder, oh, that, you know, and I was talking to someone the other day about Nexium, and they said, oh, like the medicine? And I thought, I, I don't think, you know, I read stories about them every day. And so that's in my newsfeed and in my mind. But still, there are people who are not at all exposed to these stories or not interested. And we search the papers or we search the internet for the stories that catch our eye. Um, but what do you think? Do you think by and large, people are a little more educated now than they know what to watch out for than before? I've had the same experience sometimes that you have had. When I'll get curious and ask someone if that person knows about particular, mm -hmm. and I'm just stunned that often they don't. Right. It suggest, and I see it also with my students. Mm -hmm. uh, moreover, um, mm -hmm. we have a, a, a a cultural memory about what's going on. We can go back and talk to some extent about about Jonestown and, and yeah. whatnot. Uh, Samimi's Liberation Army and Patty Hearst. Students don't have that memory. Heaven's Gate. Mm -hmm. We asked them, what's, what is Jonestown? And many don't know. I might get a fumbling answer from someone. A few have uh, talk, uh, talked about this podcast and so on. But People's lives are full and complicated as deeply as we are involved in the study and concerned about controversial groups, sects, cults, religions. Mm -hmm. They're concerned about other issues in their lives. Mm -hmm. Right. Moreover, especially now with the with the internet, on the one hand, so much is on the internet now about these controversial groups. I counted last night 
almost a dozen podcasts, and there are probably many more. Uh, Netflix has at least six cult documentaries and at least three cult fiction shows on. Mm-hmm. At least eight, I can count, three of which seem to, be, seem to have been series, uh, eight fiction accounts of cults and so on. So on the one hand, there's a lot of information, but mm-hmm. students now do not watch television. Uh, uh-huh. My students and most do not watch television. Mm-hmm. Things on television, they may or may not know about it, unless those things wind up on the internet, and on podcasts or Netflix. Uh, so an older generation is learning some things about some of these groups. Younger generation is getting exposure. Um, I am concerned that the exposure sometimes might be sensationalized, put in the context of uh, a horror or how could this happen? Jesus couldn't happen to me. Mm -hmm. Sometimes uh, for the documentaries, for example, this is a cynical view, but one of the reasons some documentaries may become so popular is because when former members or, or experts get on the show, they aren't paid. Right. So in many ways, doing a, a shows like this are relatively cheap. They may have to pay for food and wine to get people there, but they aren't the, the whatever uh, amounts uh, stars get. Right. So sometimes people who perform in these, uh, in these shows come away feeling like they're, like they're used. Mm-hmm. Um, so are people learning more? I don't know. I, it's a, the only question or the only answer I can give in some ways, yes. Uh, but the fact that there's still tra- shows on about Charles Manson after all these years. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, don't we know about that already? I guess not. Guess not. Right. Yeah. And so to go back to what you were saying, yes. I mean, you and I, I'm sure have done so many freebies, giving away information, consulting on things, uh, being interviewed. Um, and there are things that I've passed on that you've probably passed on too, where you could see where they were going to take it into a sensationalistic direction. And it was not something you could feel proud of and it wasn't right. Um, but those are the things often that make it onto television or make it onto Netflix or, or the internet. What I've found is that there's some people who are learning about cults, but I feel like with all of this education, the cults are learning about cults. So they have learned how to kind of weave their way around now what the public is looking for. And so they market themselves in a different way and call themselves something else and um, use terminology that is going to intrigue or interest people of different ages and then start a website or start a YouTube channel or whatever else and really target people. And people have no idea that it's from a group that really doesn't want to offer you any of those things. They just want to siphon off of you to feed themselves. So they've, I think the groups have gotten very clever. It's a good point uh, to take your insight even back to the pre-internet days in the 1970s. The Children of God published um, in Mo Letters some criticisms and discussions about deprogrammers. Mm. Uh, Scientology had internal uh, material about deprogrammers. Um, now, uh, these groups uh, sometimes form uh, joint organizations. Uh, under the assumption that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And um, Scientology right now, in 2019, has paid $40,000 in lobbying to a firm in Washington, D.C. to present its, to help get Scientology into government hearings. So the the self-presentation of these groups uh, has has gone on, has, uh, in terms of, teaching members what to do and not to do really goes back to the 70s. But now with the internet, uh, some of these groups are very uh, media savvy. Uh, I mean, there were some uh, famous instances back in the 70s where someone would try to deprogram, in this case, someone from the Unification Church from the Moonies. And she resisted by cutting herself, getting taken to the hospital, and then went back to the group, and she was the star. 
a young woman who manipulated a judge in Argentina uh, so that she didn't have to get a, uh, she got out of having to uh, get a physical exam that may have revealed the fact that she'd been sexually assaulted. Mm-hmm. She, her success was, was so lauded by the group that uh, David Berg put out a Mo letter about her as a model for uh, how to act the word outside authorities. Mm-hmm. Self-presentation uh, has gone on for a long time, uh, but now, of course, it's escalated. People have gotten professional. Ads, some of the television shows, uh, the publications, they're really professionally done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I remember, and also if you can describe what a Mo letter is for people who don't know, but I remember seeing some original uh, letters from different groups and they were mimeographed. You could see from the blue, right? And so people haven't heard of a mimeograph machine, I'm sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was just done, you know, in kind of a cheap way. But if you can describe what a Mo letter is, that would be great. Well, if you think back to Mad Magazine with a very elaborately done, skillful cartoons that were used to convey messages, usually funny messages. Mo letters were cartoons, uh, for the most part cartoons, drawn by very skillful artists inside the group that the group used to convey the beliefs and doctrines of David Berg, Moses David or Mo. Mm. So often there'd be a, a cartoon of some sort on the front page and then just long dialogue printed out by, by Berg himself sometimes some pictures on the inside. Mm-hmm. Or, oh, I don't even know how many, well over a thousand Mo letters. Uh, and then after Mo died, there was uh, uh, they got less um, visually sophisticated, but they still continued. For example, in the Children of God, uh, a secrecy level uh, that assigned to which Mo letters uh, members could distribute to the public and which Mo letters they had to uh, in inside the group, okay. The secrecy level is pretty interesting. Hmm. And the secrecy level, depending upon your rank within the group or how devoted you were. Uh, some secrets, for example, in the Children of God, uh, mm. the doctrines about uh, about rampant sexuality, including adult child sex, were, wide, were widespread in the group. Yeah, but they were. Policies for all members uh, called secrecy. The, the phrase uh, from the, the Christian New Testament, uh, a letter of Paul, was to the pure, to the pure, all things are pure. And the implication was mm. we as children of God members are pure, and so the sexuality we're engaged in is on a different level. Uh-huh. And so in that case, everybody in the group knew it. In other cases, uh, the groups have hierarchies so that only inner circle members know things. Mm-hmm. Inner circles are very important mm-hmm. in groups. And to make a jump over to current political activities, uh, it's interesting to see how uh, people on the inside uh, have to accommodate and protect the leader, uh, protect the leader from outside information that the leader does not want to hear and also uh, convey or, ex- or explain to the outside world uh, what the leader believes or, or what the leader has said or meant. Uh-huh. Right. People are making analogi- analogies between uh, cult- religious cults and political cults and then even start talking about the current American politics. Uh, the, it's remarkable to see the, the facilitators in the Trump administration. You will recall uh, the one cabinet meeting where people went around the room and one by one by one uh, proclaimed how thankful they were to be in the Trump administration and be working with this with this figure. Yeah, that was chilling. Yeah, anyone who worked with uh, restrictive cultists right. saw that and just went, oh, there's problems. Mm-hmm. Moreover, uh, the spin that that many of his of his inner circles give to some of the more 
difficult to explain activities and comments Trump makes is also facilitating uh, him trying to reduce it to do damage control and so on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, uh, a couple of things that I keep coming across that when people talk about Trump, and again, this isn't a, this is not meant to say one way of uh, voting is better than another way. I could have my views, but really, but what we're talking about is some of the similarities we're seeing from our work to now what what we're coming across with people um, in American politics and also politics sometimes, you know, and currently actually around in other places and other countries. This idea that what the person in charge does doesn't matter. And you wonder why that is, because other politicians, like the previous guy we had, was under such a microscope and, and the tiniest things mattered in a great way. But then when you have someone who just says whatever they want, whenever, I think people sort of get used to that. And there's a desensitization to it. And there's so many fires to put out all day long that you just say, okay, never mind. And that's dangerous too, that you know, a person can get away with so much. But I think also when when a lot of people who come to this office or come to the former cult member support group that I have here, they'll talk about sitting in four-hour meetings, eight-hour meetings, 10-hour meetings, 12-hour meetings. And of course, the person eventually is not going to make sense anymore. And of course, they're going to say contradictory things, but you can't question it. And you have to make sense of it in your mind. And you've probably tuned out a number of times anyway, so you wouldn't be able to follow it because who can? Um, but I think, you know, it's so similar to just sort of the constant talking and the tweeting and, and all of it, just all this information out there that's not held up to any kind of um, standard. And even when there is fact checking, it still doesn't matter. I mean, that blows my mind. But it's very much like what we come across a lot. Often I think about the concept that appears in many of these groups uh, around crazy wisdom. Oh, I like that. Wisdom was a concept uh, that developed in relation to Eastern uh, gurus and swamis who claimed that they had reached enlightenment. Hence, they were above, to use Nietzschean phrase, above good and evil. They were purified. They understood. They were not corrupted by things that they, that they did and said. Mm -hmm. uh, moreover, uh, the outlandish activities they did actually were for the benefits of their followers. Uh, activities were to break people through their barriers, mm -hmm. uh, to challenge authority. I see some of what, what goes on with some of these political leaders, and it's not just in the US. It, the assumption that many people hold is that the leader is uh, is insightful, holds wisdom, uh, holds an understanding, uh, and it, uh, it, an understanding about the cor uh, the corrupt nature of, of uh, legitimate authority. That what the leader does is ultimately beneficial for people. Mm -hmm. We focus a lot on on Trump. We focus a lot on Kim Jong Un. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the big areas of interest now is the rise of China. Mm. With President Xi, uh, he has he has um, uh, consolidated control of his uh, uh, political apparatus. China is involved in a worldwide soft power program uh, that's that's reaching throughout the West, throughout parts of Africa and Europe, and so on. Uh, and of course, uh, cold like China has what may be the most extensive uh, monitoring surveillance system in the world right now. And North Korea is, is, is intense. I don't want to uh, diminish that. Right, sure. But China has technology. So it's, it's uh, establishment of, of facial recognition uh, cameras around the country uh, in the context of a system that is rewarding people who are loyal to the party and further the party's aims and punishing citizens who do things to challenge the party. That's an extraordinary system. Mm -hmm. If you look at what's going on against the Uyghurs, the Islamic Uyghurs, 
in China. Uh, the establishment of, and they're called different things, brainwashing camps, re-education camps, concentration camps. Uh, probably a million or so Uyghurs are in these camps. Uh, and the evidence is very clear. Internal evidence from Chinese documents. There's also the satellite images of these facilities being built. Uh, Uyghurs, in the early 90s, I believe, there were some Uyghur terrorist activities, which is enough to initiate the, the, the Chinese government's wholesale uh, a crackdown against the Uyghurs to the extent that many people are talking about what's going on as a, as a form of cultural genocide. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, we look at the kind of control mechanisms that go on inside groups. And the groups we look at can be anything from two people to you know uh, thousands. Mm -hmm. Nothing we look at, nothing comes even close to what's going on involving the surveillance systems developed in China. One more thing before you go. It's very powerful to speak with Stephen Kent. We will continue our conversation next week when we talk more about what is happening in China and around the world and how and why people add fuel to the fire and how we all impact each other. Today, I want to go back to something that Stephen and I talked about, which is how he and others in our field react to personalities like Trump, to be honest, people who make others take the fall for them specifically. This isn't a political statement as much as it is a psychological statement, one that encompasses not only human psychology, but social psychology and political psychology. And one of the things that we talk about in our field is this idea that someone can develop an inner circle a circle that they surround themselves with, the people who will say yes to them and the people who will protect them and the people who will keep their secrets and the people who will forgive them and the people who don't necessarily hold them up to a particular standard of behavior or ethics or even consistency or truth. And what's also interesting is that within that inner circle, those people often feel that they are immune, that they are protected, but they're not because at a moment's notice, as we've seen, when it suits the person in charge and when it helps them achieve their own goals, they will have people suddenly fired who truly believed they had some sort of permanent place within that trusted inner circle. And people also who work for the personalities like Trump's are people who do the dirty work for them. People who are the ones who are publicly breaking the law or taking full blame and having their reputation destroyed. And it reminded me that within many cultic groups and people who are in relationships with narcissists, it's the others, the followers, the partners, who are the ones who take the fall, who take the blame. They let all of the responsibility be placed on them and they suffer the consequences. And maybe it's not right to say they let it happen, but they might feel they don't have a choice. And they do suffer from the after effects of it all, even if the idea that they got in trouble for it did not at all originate from them. Within cults, it's often the leader who stays comfortably behind and protected while other people do their dirty work, get their hands dirty, are their mouthpieces and spokespeople, act as their police force and enforcers, the ones who directly harass others, the ones who break the law, the ones who go on camera, the ones who follow people around, hack into their phones, their emails. The leaders don't usually do these things. So then they have plausible deniability. They can say that because they are not the ones who did it. So they can kind of say or be believed that maybe it wasn't their idea to begin with. And they are not guilty of anything in an obvious way, and it's shocking how often they get away with it. The law looks for tangible evidence in control, manipulation, fear. Those things are not tangible enough as evidence. A number of clients I work with have gotten caught up with families who run psychic and palm reading centers, and while certainly not all of them are part of a criminal enterprise, some of them are. And they are not the ones who go to jail, but rather it's their victims who are the ones who leave a paper trail because they're the ones who are told to open up new lines of credit to be able to siphon more money to them. 
And they're the ones who end up breaking the law at their behest or their urging. And they're made to feel that they don't have a choice if they want or need the magic to work. I remember a client of mine who came to see me as she was ending her six-year marriage to a man she realized cared more about his reputation and cared more about having people like him than he cared about people liking her or trusting her. In her mind and in the mind of her family and friends, well, he began to really fit the profile of a narcissist. They actually brought it to her attention. When she and her husband at the time were invited to a party or to an event or to a fundraiser or to anything of significance in anyone else's life, if they were able to make it, he was the one to make the call to say that they could make it and they could be there. So he would receive the accolades and the thank yous and the appreciation. But if they couldn't make it and they couldn't attend and they couldn't show up, and sometimes the reason was just because he didn't feel like going, even if she wanted to, she was the one who had to make the call to decline an invitation. She had to be the one to say no while he was the one who could say yes. The negative response had to come from her email or in her handwriting or come from her phone number. She was often the one to apologize and having to sort of make up a story about why she was not able to make it and how sorry she felt. But really, she did feel very sorry, mostly for herself because she was so isolated by being with him and that she wasn't really able to spend all this time with people she really missed and see people she hadn't seen for a very long time. She remembers also when people would get the response, the RSVP and the negative, they would sometimes call him to see if he could convince her to say yes, as though that were her idea. And she would hear him saying on the phone, really, with her being able to hear it, and it's like he didn't have any problem lying about this in front of her, that he felt very sorry and he would try to make it up to them in another way, and he would do what it, he could to try to convince her to go, but it might be impossible because, you know, when she makes up her mind, she's very stubborn. So, taking the fall was one of the many things she had put up with for a long time, and it affected her reputation even after they divorced. There were just too many people to try to clear up that kind of information and her reputation with, and she just wanted to move on, and that's what she did. But people still to this day, she knows, consider her to be the antisocial one and the insensitive one and the uncaring one towards family, friends, and causes. So if you find that you are the one getting your hands dirty and the one breaking your back and the one having to make the phone call and the one having to say things to your loved ones, especially your children, that you don't really mean and you can't really back up emotionally and it doesn't feel right to you and you're the one needing to disappoint the people you love and you're doing it at the request and the demand of someone else who doesn't want to look like the bad one and doesn't want to have their reputation sullied, doesn't want to have to do anything that seems messy. Well, you need to know in those moments that you don't matter and how you are viewed and your health and your emotional well-being and your relationships and your ethical and moral code are unimportant and expendable in this other person's eyes. Scapegoating is nothing new and something that is deeply embedded in our social history. The ones who are not the leaders and not in power and not in the majority financially, racially, religiously are usually the scapegoats. It's also important to understand the idea of blame and misplaced blame, especially when it is purposely misplaced and redirected. Blame is a defense mechanism, a projection, a denial a displacement, a way to preserve your standing, your superiority, your self-esteem by avoiding blame. For those who truly believe or need to believe that it is another person's fault, then blaming someone else is a way to avoid having an actual awareness of your own flaws and mistakes and failings. People work very hard to minimize their own accountability sometimes. There's also something called a fundamental attribution error, or sometimes called correspondence bias, where people excuse themselves for the same negative behavior that they blame others for doing. If someone steps on your toe, you can be upset that they were so careless, but if you step on someone else's toe, there is a higher chance, actually, they've done social studies about this, 
that instead of taking full responsibility, you might sooner feel that they were being careless by putting their foot in your way, and that it must have been that you were jostled or pushed or surprised and set off balance, and that's why it happened. That somehow it was the other person's fault, and that the person who stepped on their toe, well, they're the innocent ones. They're not fully responsible. They don't have to feel bad. It helps for some people emotionally to be able to feel indifferent or maybe at most a bit embarrassed. But a lot of people also find a way to feel defensive or righteously indignant. That's the ego protecting itself. So just as it happens now within our government that the people in charge want to be seen as the people who are needing to clean up the messes left by the people who came before them instead of being the ones to create new problems or make it already existing problems worse. There is a lot of immature but dangerous finger pointing, and it starts when people are very young and you expect that when they're getting older, uh, that it's going to somehow go away, that that need will go away. But when adults do it, it becomes much more diagnostic about their character and about their level of confidence and their ability to take responsibility and sometimes even their inability to see things for how they are and understand cause and effect, or at least understand that they are the cause, and this is the effect. I don't tend to trust people who have divided loyalties as much as others, and you can see it when they don't seem to be clear about which side they're taking and who they're willing to say is at fault and who was responsible. They don't hold to the same story and they flip-flop, and then you can't quite believe them after a while, especially when they are finger-pointing. But the kind of personality that I think is even more dangerous than the person who has divided allegiance is the person who has no allegiance. The person who has no allegiance to anyone but him or herself. There's also a misinterpretation for many that taking blame when it is really yours and saying you're sorry when it is really your fault is a sign of weakness. But as we know, it's actually a sign and a show of great strength. People who are constitutionally healthy have no problem saying they're sorry. But if someone makes you take the fall for them and be the one to say you are sorry when it was really their fault, please remember that is not your job. You're just knowingly or unknowingly participating in them remaining children, basically, and never needing to grow up. Talk to you next week. Indoctrination is available for download on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com slash indoctrination. Subscribers receive bonus episodes, interviews, and other cool goodies. Send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support. And if you can't become a paid subscriber, I will be so grateful for any and all support that you show. Whether it's subscribing on SoundCloud, YouTube, or Patreon, or giving us a like on our Indoctrination Facebook page or following our Twitter and Reddit feeds. Thank you for keeping up with us and for keeping the show going. Until next time, Rachel. <laughs>